All right. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? Everybody good? Um, uh, Jeremy and Jen's little girl came to me, and she was talking about the pool party that's coming up, the summer blast off, and she said, I can't wait. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in. I'm going to take off my, my life jacket, and I'm going to dive in in the deep end. I'm like, can you swim? She's like, no. I was like, you might want to run that by, just so you guys know. I told her to run it by you guys, so you, you, you got some time. <laughs> I'm excited about all the things that are coming up. Obviously, with the uh, medical thing, you know, David Woodham, is, his, uh, the recipe comes from the firehouse, um, those, uh, those beans and rice, and so it's going to be some good stuff. Um, Again, this is something we noticed a long, long time ago with our, our church, that there were so many people connected to the medical field. Um, one of the things I love is we have doctors, we have nurses, we have all kinds of people in different places. And so often, the stories they tell us of praying for people that they're seeing and they're ministering to um, in a practical way, but also praying for their spiritual health and then seeing God do crazy, amazing things that often they can't tell us because of, you know, patient uh, doctor kind of uh, confidentiality and that kind of thing. But we've heard some incredible stories, just general stories. So God uses it in a big, big way, and it's, just, it's part of it is just a way to give back and just love on these guys. Um, but the other part of it is it gives us an opportunity to go, hey, this is who our Jesus is. He loves you. He sees you. We're part of what you're doing. We love you. We're thankful for our community. I'm going to get into that in just a second. So I want to continue a series. David Woodham preached, started a series on Easter Sunday called The Story of Us. And I shared this before. He came to me and he says, hey, I've got this message. Um, it's just burning in my heart. I feel like the, the Lord wants me to share it. What do you think about that? And he knew that's kind of a, a, a touchy subject with the senior pastor because senior pastors always preach Easter Sunday. It's just a rule. I don't know where it came from, but it's a rule. Everybody knows it's true. And what was really interesting is I was really struggling with what to preach on Easter Sunday. That's not normally a problem, as you can guess. I don't normally have a problem coming up with something to say, right? That's not my problem. <laughs> I have to calm it down some. So, um, but what was interesting is I was really struggling. There was a million things I could say, but I just didn't feel like they were imperative, if that makes sense. And so as he said that, I said, no, this is really good, Dave. I, I really think you should. Let me just tell you, he knocked it out of the park. If you haven't heard that message, go back and listen to it. He just told the story, the big picture story of God and us and how that intersected. And then last week, Karen came and she shared, you know, that we talked about the meta-narrative. I'm going to get into that in just a second. But Karen came last, last week and she, she shared the, her micro-narrative. In other words, hey, here's the big story of us. Here's the big story of God and what he's done in our lives. And, here's, and Karen came and said, here's how my story intersected with his and I became a part of his story. Or she became a part of history, right? That's kind of how that works. And so they started with this phrase. You could hear it, he just threaded it throughout because it's threaded throughout the story that there was a lamb. The lamb must be slain. At some point, the lamb is going to be slain. It started from the very beginning. The lamb is going to be slain. And what's fascinating about that scripture is that scripture, there's other references to it, but the actual scripture that talks about the lamb being slain before the foundation of time. It happens one time where it's said exactly like that, and it happens in the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, at the end of all things. And how fascinating he is at the end of all things, God references and reminds us, hey, from the beginning, before there was a beginning even, before Genesis chapter 1, before there was time, before there was you, there was a lamb slain before the foundations of time. This is what we call a meta-narrative, the big picture story that all the other stories fit into one way or the other. And so what is a, a meta-narrative? Here's the definition you'll find on Wikipedia. And so you might want to go quick because Wikipedia changes every day. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> but I don't trust it. That's part of it. We're going to get to why I don't trust it in a second. But a meta-narrative is a narrative about narratives of historical meaning, experience, knowledge, which offers a society legitima legitimation through the anticipated completion of an as-yet-unrealized master idea. And that means zero to you because I said it fast. But I did it on purpose because part of the problem with this meta-narrative and postmodernism we're going to get to in just a second is, is can, if they can make it confusing, you won't pay attention, <laughs> right? And you're just like, oh, it's no big deal. But it is consuming our culture, and we're going to get to that in a second. So what is it? It's a big picture, all-encompassing theme that unites all the smaller themes together into and through individual stories. In other words, it's, it's kind of like you're going to build a house. The meta-narrative is the blueprint. The plumber comes in and he's running plumbing into, you know, they start out even before the foundation is built. They, they're running plumbing, they're running lines, it's going to get covered with concrete, so it has to be done before the floor, right? 
but it's done because there's a big picture plan that says when the house is complete, all the pieces parts need to work together to make it a home. And that's what a meta narrative is. It's just like a big blueprint that starts it somewhere it starts in the beginning and usually we're caught up somewhere in the middle, but at some point it's going to come to a culmination and it's going to end and when it does, it's going to make a whole lot of sense. So there are different kinds of meta narratives. There there's uh, political ones, Marxism, um, free market capitalism, enlightenment, emancipation. These are all meta narratives that try to explain the world, kind of like a big picture worldview that try to explain all the stories within it. And then religious meta-narratives like uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity would be called a meta-narrative, uh, religious worldviews basically. But a meta-narrative has the power to explain and purports to be true for all of life. In other words, this is what's going on. All the questions you have when you say, why is this happening to me? The, the meta-narrative tells the big picture story as to why those things are going on. People say, I don't understand why God would allow sickness. Well, do you really want to know? Because he explains the whole thing in this best-selling book that he put out on Amazon. You can get it. I mean, you can actually get it for free. The Gideons will let you steal it right out of a hotel room, right? The whole point is, is there's a big picture story. If we really are interested in it and we really want to know, it's, it's available to us. The problem is so often we don't like the way the meta-narrative pans out. We don't like what it has to say, so we reject the meta-narrative out of hand because we don't like the, the implications of it, and that's the danger. So here's the problem with meta-narratives. Our current culture does not believe in them at all. <laughs> they just don't. So they prefer what's called a micro-narrative or an individual narrative. And so here's the way you know this is true. It, it, it became prominent in our culture in a way that you can understand it. And when I tell you, you'll remember, Oprah Winfrey comes on and she says, and she said a lot of crazy things, but this one was in particular was way crazy. And when she said it, I was like, that is so wrong. I can't, I'm so mad that I can't even tell you how wrong it is. This is what she said. You just need to live your truth. That is a micro-narrative. In other words, it doesn't matter what other people think. Um, truth is what you make of it in your individual perspective. It's all about what you think about. It's all individual. It's all about you. That's the problem with micro-narratives. They're all about you, right? But what's interesting about the meta-narrative that we're going to talk about is it is also all about you. It's all about Jesus wanting you. It's all about the Father wanting you. It's all about the fact that we were broken and we came apart and we were separated. And there's this long history of the separation and it tells the story through the Old Testament and it culminates in Jesus. It culminates in the cross. It culminates in the fact that in this moment of time, there was a moment in time where old time existed and new time started. Literally, the year that we live in is a mark. Uh, uh, Immarcation of all the way back to the beginning of when Jesus died on the cross, when he was born, and then when he died on the cross, is something happened on that day that changed everything. But it's not completely finished, and that's the challenge that we live in. Um, a lot of churches discovered this in the last hundred years or so when the power of God started coming back on scene. We discovered that we live in a kingdom come right? Jesus said the kingdom's here. He, he said it's coming, and then the cross came, and, and the kingdom was established. The power of the Holy Spirit was poured out on, on us as the church in the book of Acts. And so it began something powerful over the dark ages. We lost it over time, began to gain it back, and so the kingdom come and the kingdom not yet. Part of that is we, we experienced this this morning when we're praying for me and praying for my healing. I'm like, Lord, I, I can feel a change already. I feel it's, it's different. It's better than it was, but it's not 100%. And I've been 100% healed. I've been healed in the moment, and it's phenomenal. And I, I encourage you to get that if you can. <laughs> right? It's so awesome. But also, I've also been healed gradually. I've been healed supernaturally and gradually and supernaturally and instantly. And I prefer the instant. And I think, I think you would too. And so, because a part of this is the kingdom has come, but the kingdom is also not yet. In other words, there are still some things unrealized in this meta narrative. And some of that matters because you matter and you make a difference. So often people would come to Jesus and they'd say, How come this, wasn't, how come this per person wasn't healed? And sometimes he would say it was because of their unbelief. Right? And there are other times that people weren't healed. And he said, hey, why, did, why was this person sick? They were blind from birth. Is it because of the parents who sinned or because he sinned? He's like, no, neither one of them. It's not that they hadn't sinned. He's just saying that that's not where that blindness had come from. And he says, hey, this is for the glory of God. In this process where the enemy meant to destroy this person's life for, the, for their whole life and take away something God had given them from the beginning as a gift and wholeness and all those things, the enemy had tried to take it away. 
And in the story, Jesus intersects that story, and the whole meta narrative changes in a moment. And that's the thing that we see is there's a beautiful thing that happens with, with when God begins to intervene. He begins to, he begins to grab hold of some truth and put it inside of our heart, but there's some responsibility that you and I have to take hold of. So I want to just talk a little bit about this, the story of us and, and, and do you know the story, actually? Do you know this meta narrative? you know this big picture thing? What's interesting about the postmodernists, you know, postmodernism, is a, is a reaction to modernism. When we came out of the 1950s after World War II and science had cured polio and science had done this and science had done this and, you know, and, and, and everybody had money and there was plenty and all this stuff was happening in the world and everybody's looking at it going, we're going to create utopia and then we did and then it wasn't. <laughs> right, and so all the kids who grew up with their parents coming out of that postmodernism who made all these promises how the world's gonna be better and then it turns out it wasn't. And they're mad and they're angry and they're like, well, your big meta-narrative, you know, one of the meta-narratives was science is going to fix everything. And it didn't. And we know that because COVID, right? So follow the science. It's like, I did follow science and I don't like science anymore, <laughs> right? So it's letting us down. And so postmodernism is this reaction to that saying, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to buy into all these big picture stories that's, that's the story of everything and it's, somehow it's going to work out because I'm seeing that it's not working out. Which falls right into, interestingly enough, the meta-narrative of the gospel, the meta-narrative of the kingdom, the meta-narrative that God said, hey, there's a reason why everything's broken. Would you really like to know what it is? But the good news is it was broken, but it's now, it's now fixed, and you get to be a part of that. So what's fascinating about postmodernism is they don't believe in absolutes. And I've had great conversations with people who understand this, and they'll go, no, 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 there are no absolutes. And I'm like, I can't wait for them to say that, because right, at, right as they finish, I say, you do know that that statement was an absolute. There are no absolutes is an absolute, right? And what happens is when you do that, it just cuts our legs out from under us, and we realize that truth is truth and everything else is an opinion, right? We know that. Everybody knows that. Like we, and we know there's, there are, uh, uh, what's the word for it? There are nuances to things. We get that. I get there are nuances to things. It's like that people say, if God was good, then why is there evil? It's a great question. Do you really want to know the answer? Because it's, I can't just say, well, you know, God is good. Because you, you're looking at the world going, I want to explain this complex meta-narrative. And you just said God is good. And that makes no sense. But it can because a meta-narrative is a big, big story. And it takes a little bit of time to tell that story. And, and I don't know if you guys know this, but our, our culture has turned into this microwave mentality that if you can't put it on a little square box inside social media, then I don't want to hear about it. It's like, well, it takes time sometimes to tell these stories, right? So anyway, what's really also ironic about postmodernism and the fact that postmodernism doesn't believe in meta-narratives, postmodernism has become the new meta-narrative. <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. Because <laughs> the whole idea is, is like, we've got this figured out, and we're, what we're saying is there are no absolutes, because if there aren't any absolutes, then you're not accountable, right? That's why that works, why people like that idea. It's like, I don't want to judge you for the way you're living, because if, if anybody can be judged, then that means I can be judged, right? If, if, if I say what you're doing is wrong, that means there's a right and wrong. If I agree to the fact there are absolutes, then I'm accountable to the absolute. I'm accountable to truth. Remember when Pilate, when Pilate was standing before Jesus, and, and, and his, his phrase, his, I mean, just resounded throughout history, what is truth? Like, it's not lying, you imbecile, right? It's not hard. This is not hard. But we want it to be difficult. We want to disagree. We want to push back on absolutes. We want to push back on meta narratives because if we do, then we're not accountable to them. We can live in this isolated bubble, and we can pretend like everything's okay when everybody knows things are not okay. So there's an interesting uh, passage in, in Mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the Christian says, talking about meta-narratives and worldviews, he says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And see, that's, that's a meta-narrative. He's explaining a meta-narrative. He's like, you really want to know this, 
then read this book. And then he's just driving it back to this is what the Bible has been trying to tell us the whole time. This is God's revelation to man, that there is a plan, that there's something going on. It's not an accident. We're in the process of something. This is a story. Do you know the story? And so often people don't. They think they know the story, but they don't. So here's the big story of the Bible. It's easy to find. I mean, there's lots of passages we could use. But Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, and I'm going to read it to you in a paraphrase from a, a, a paraphrase Bible called The Word Come Alive. It just helps to, to bring it out. It's, anyway, this is what it says. God has now revealed to us the mystery of his will. See, Paul talked about that a lot. He said there's a mystery that's been hidden, but it's not hidden anymore. When Jesus came, when the gospel began to be preached, the mystery went away, and it's as clear as it can possibly be if you are interested in knowing it. So this is what he goes on. He said, it takes, he said, he, talking about God, takes great pleasure in letting us in on the inside story of what he planned in Christ. In other words, if you want to know, God is happy to tell you. He's already told you, actually. He's already written it down. It's available to you. And it's been preached for thousands of years. Verse 10 says, God is already working out this plan And in the fullness of time, it will be complete. In other words, we're somewhere in the middle of the meta-narrative. We're not at the end. We're not at the beginning. So we're somewhere in the middle. He said his plan is to restore harmony to this broken, confused universe. So in other words, something came in and tore this whole thing apart. It's why why we cry out for justice. Because we know there's justice. We know there should be. Mere mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, the moment you say something ought to be so is an indication that you know there's truth and you know there's justice and it's transcendent. In other words, it's bigger than you. It came before you. It will be after you. It's it's a meta-narrative. So he goes on. He says his ultimate goal is to bring everything together again. What has been put out of harmony, disharmony, is going to be brought back into harmony. That is everything in heaven and everything on earth into a coherent whole. In other words, it's going to begin to make sense. At some point, it's going to make sense. Remember the Bible says at some point, every every tongue is going to confess, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Why? Because at some point, it's going to be you can't deny it. You can try to deny it if you want. But it's just like, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be a blind man and tell you there's no such thing as the color red because in my experience, I haven't seen it. But that doesn't mean it's not true. And anybody who can see will say, well, I, then try to explain red to me. It's hard if you can't see, right? It's hard to explain the color red to a blind man. He says it's going to be put into a, coher- a coherent whole, summed up in Christ as the head, the focal point, and reunited in him. See, it's about wholeness. Something's broken. Something's broken in you. Something's broken in me. Something's broken in all of us. We're born broken. And Jesus has the answer. As a matter of fact, it turns out, Jesus doesn't have the answer. Jesus is the answer. And that's the difference. We're going to get to that in just a second. Here's an example of the restoration of all things. This is a picture in Jeremiah when it talks about um, the people who were carried away into exile, into Babylon. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. This is what he tells them to do. He said, listen, you think this is the end of all things. You're whining and you're complaining. You're so angry. You know, he goes on other places to say, a lot of this you brought on yourself, okay? (laughs) And that's so often we're like, God, if you're so good, then why is this happening? It's like, well, you're the one who was driving on the wrong side of the road. You're the one who got drunk. You're the one who violated all the things that are true. And then you're angry because something happened that was inevitable. It was going to happen, right? And so here's this story of these guys in, in exile. And even in exile, even living in a captive culture, which if you're not paying attention, that's where we live right now, right, as Christians. He said, when you're there, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease. In other words, don't don't sit down in the pile of ashes and complain and cry. Live your life. Live the life of representation of who the God of Israel is to the Babylonians. And this is what it says is so powerful. He said, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. These are people who are in exile. They've been carried away here. They, have, they don't have freedoms like they would like to have freedoms. And God says, even in exile, don't forget that you're part of a big story. You've got caught up. 
and thinking that the God of Israel was just the God of Israel. But what he told Abram was, or Abraham was, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the other nations. The whole point behind you knowing me is so that other people can know me. You become part of this story. You become a, an expression of the story to the world. You are going to be, even in exile, such a picture of the goodness and the kindness and the love of God that people are going to want to know what's going on with you. They're going to say, you are different. Why are you different? That was my story. When I gave my life to Jesus, my, my boss in the military, there was something different about it. I could not put my finger on it, but I knew he was different. When I discovered, when I asked him, he said, man, it's not hard. It's Jesus. I'm like, no, no, something else. <laughs> Some other answer that's not, you know, religious. Like, he's like, sorry. This is the answer, man. This is the way it goes. So it's interesting, that, that phrase, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. It's a Greek word. It means peace. Some versions say seek the peace, seek the welfare of the city. But it's really interesting. That, that word means literally wholeness. Seek the wholeness of your city. What would it look like if you and I sought the wholeness of Dothan, Alabama, or wherever, maybe if you're watching online, wherever you live, what would it look like if you said, I can't, instead of saying, I can't wait to get out of this one-horse town, <laughs> right, to go to a two-horse town that's just a town with more horses, right? <laughs> the problem with you is you take you everywhere you go, right? That's the problem. So the problem isn't this town. The problem isn't being in a confined culture. The problem isn't that there's an enemy against you. That's not the problem. The problem's you. The problem is you haven't bought into the meta narrative. You haven't said, you know what, I can lean into even in suffering, even when the world looks at me and goes, why are you so happy? It's like, I can tell you, but you're not going to like it, right? Because it, it, there's some implications behind this story. But if you want what I have, I can give it to you. Isn't that beautiful? That's a story that God called. So here's the gospel. Going back to Ephesians 1.9 again. It's in Christ. Every bit of this, the whole story, is not about you doing better. And we're going to get to that. It's not about somehow this religious thing that you have to do. It literally is all about Jesus. He's not, he's not going to tell you the answer. He is the answer. He's not going to tell you the way. He is the way. Other religions will tell you the way. This is what you have to do to find it. Jesus said, forget all that. I'm it. You get to know me, I'm it. That's, that's, the, that's the whole story. There's no other story in the Bible but Jesus, right? So listen to this. God has now revealed to us the mystery of his will. He takes great pleasure in letting us in on the inside story of what he planned where? In Christ. Everything he planned is in Christ. Everything that's going on in your life is in Christ. Everything that's going on, everything that the whole unit, your job, your career, your family, everything is in Christ. He goes on down uh, toward the end of the verse. He says, after he talks about being a coherent whole, he said it's summed up in this way, in Christ as the head. In other words, the only way this is going to work, this meta narrative, this big story, is if you are submitted to the story. If you are submitted to the main character of the story, the main character is not you even though it's about you. It's about a God who loves you. And even though we were broken and we went far away, that he made a way we couldn't make and drew us back to him. He could have just said, like in the days of Noah, I'm going to kill everybody. If there's nobody righteous, I'm going to kill them all, except Noah and his kids, right? So build a boat, Noah, and we're gonna, you know, we'll save you. And so he starts again, right? And on the, on the cross, Jesus just said, you know what? I, I, you know, right before in the garden, I let this cut past. Matter of fact, you know what? I'm sick of these people. <laughs> this would have been my version. I don't like any of them, right? <laughs> They're all bad. Goodness gracious. Let's just, I, we'll be by ourselves. <laughs> but he didn't. He didn't do this. His heart was longing. He made us on purpose because he longed to be with us. The Bible says this, this, is, this gospel is stuff that the angels long to look into, but they can't understand it. You know why? Because they can't be redeemed. They're part of the story, but not in the way that you and I can be part of the story. Nobody else in all of humanity, as much as you want to hug a tree or save a well, neither one of those can be redeemed. Only you can. Only you can. And that's the story of the gospel. All of this, everything about you is wrapped up in Jesus. He says, this is what's going to happen at the end of time. Christ is going to be the head. In other words, we're going to submit. He's the focal point, and everything, all the universe, is going to be bring in harmony, this coherent whole in him. There's no other way that it's going to happen. No other meta-narrative 
answers the questions, the big picture questions. None of them do. So Jesus is the point of the story. You see this in Hebrews. It traces themes that start all the way back in the Old Testament, and it culminates in the story of Jesus. He says, in the past, this is Hebrews 1, in the past God spoke to our people through the prophets. Here's how God worked in this part of the story. But he says, and now, but in these last days, God has spoken finally and completely and wholly through his son. Go read Hebrews. The whole story of Hebrews is about nothing is as good as Jesus. Nothing, right? And it goes through all that, and he says, the son shows the glory of God. He is the perfect copy or representation of God, God's nature. He holds everything together by his powerful command. You know, when I was studying uh, science, and, and they, they told me that these these Adam, you know, in the, these parts of the atom are held together, but nobody knows how. And then I read that, and I'm like, well, that's how. You can call it something else. You can give it a Latin name if you want, but it's Jesus holding it together, it turns out, right? But we're like, well, that's too simple. Well, maybe, <laughs> but it's still true, right? Jesus somehow, in his word, is holding the whole universe together. And as hard as it's trying to split apart and break apart, Jesus said, when it's all said and done, I'm going to bring it all back together, and it's going to be in harmony. You are going to be in harmony if you submit to the headship of Jesus. But you have to do something with the story. It's not enough to know there's a story. Everybody knows there's a story. It doesn't take long as a child for you to figure out the world is bigger than you. When you're two, the whole world revolves around you. Somebody said one time, they're like, hey, how do you reason with a two-year-old trying to be a good parent? And and my friend who was standing there said, you you can't reason with a (laughs) two-year-old. Just tell them what to do, right? At some point, you can, you're going to reason with them, but not when they're two. Just go, do this, you know, stop poking your brother in the eye, whatever. And sometimes that's, that's where we are. It's like, well, you can't reason with people who are unreasonable. That's true, which is why we have police forces, is why we have, sometimes we have to take a stand when we don't want to take a stand because some people are unreasonable. But some point, at the end of it all, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess, this is the story. It's always been the story. Whether I like it or not, it's the story. You have to do something with the story. You have to believe the story. It's not enough to hear it. You have to believe it. And then you have to become part of that story. In in Romans, Paul talks about the the Gentiles, and he's, he's trying to make an argument for the Gentiles coming into the story because the Israelites had gone into that same mindset. They'd come into, come out of, when they came out of Babylon, there's like, you know, everything that God's doing is all because we're special. But who cares about the the heathen, the pagans, right? Who cares? And God's like, I care. Why do you think I picked you and chose you? Because I want to represent myself to the whole world through you. It's what he told Abraham. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to every nation in this world. And this is why Jesus has saved you. Not so you can spend the glory of what God has done on your own life, although you can. But he's called you to, why are you still here? If it's just about you and finding relationship with Jesus, you've done that if you're a Christian. Why are you still here? Because the story's not finished and you're part of the story. You get to tell the story. We're going to get to that in a second. Here are the implications, though, of believing the story. Do you believe the story? Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a British uh, pastor, he's passed away now, he talked about the gospel being good news. You've heard me say this. It literally literally means um, news almost too good to be true. That's what what the gospel, the word gospel literally means. He said this, he said, advice is counsel about something to do that hasn't happened yet, but you can do something about it. That's what advice is. It's like, you know, you should pay off your your, uh, house early. It's like, yeah, I should. (laughs) That's good advice, right? It's hard though. Give that a shot. That's very difficult to do, right? But that's advice. He said, news though is about something that has happened. You can do nothing about the story except respond to it. It's the only thing you have. So do you want advice or do you want news? And so he goes on. He says, if a king defeats an invading army, he sends back messengers, heralders, good newsers, people who are telling the story, right? And they bring a report and they say, hey, the king has won the battle. It's all finished. It's all over. It's done. Now here are, here are the implications of the king winning the battle. And there's great joy. And everybody's like, yay. Right? I get to live this amazing life, not captive, not being you know, sought after by the enemy, not trying to be killed. I have joy. I have freedom. I, have, I can live this life not because I did anything about it, but because a king went and he won a battle. And the battle's finished. And all I'm doing now is responding to the good news, right? Or (laughs) if the invading army breaks through, the king sends back military advisors, people who are giving advice, 
and they say, swordsmen over here and marksmen over here and the horsemen over here, we're going to have to fight for our lives. That's advice. So do you want news, good news, or do you want good advice? All the religions of the world, all the other meta-narratives in the world are just giving you good advice. Here's how you have to live. Here's what you ought to do. Here's, and they say all the things that are true. There is an ought to. There is justice. There is truth. There are absolutes. But they're trying to frame it in a way that's not true. And so the difference between all the other meta-narratives in the kingdom and the gospel and the plan that God has revealed in Scripture is that it's only news and you can respond to it or not. That's up to you. But you can't do anything to change it. It's good news. If you receive it, it's good news. Here's the big difference. One is a response of joy. You hear the good news, the battle's been won, there's nothing for you to do about it. Just rejoice in it and walk in the freedom that it's brought you. Or you can respond in fear. And that's what religion does. It forces you constantly be asking the question, did I pray enough? Did I go to church enough? Did I get enough, give enough? Was I good enough? And the answer is, if you're taking advice, probably not, try harder, brother. But if you heard the good news, you're going, what, what does that got to do with anything? <laughs> what do you mean, was I good enough? What that, what's, it got, what's that got to do with the king winning the battle about being good enough? He already won. I can just walk in joy. Right? Beautiful. So how would you act? This is a big question. How would you act if the story was true? Here's what you would do. You would live from it, not try to live to it. So it's a different. You wouldn't try to get God's approval. You would realize you already have it. That's what would happen if you believed the story. This is what, how do you know someone's been saved? People ask me this, how do you know someone's been saved? Because they're living from something, not to it, and it's not very difficult to see. You can see them, you can see the stress on their lives, you can see the fear in their eyes, you can see all of that culminating in there's something I have to do to get God's approval. Or someone walks in this massive freedom of God has already given me all the approval. What Jesus did on the cross has rescued me. He's saved me. He's, he's taken all my sin away and he's given me a brand new heart where before I had a heart of stone, now it's a heart of flesh and it's open and it's free and I can love and be loved. Maybe like I mentioned earlier, some grave clothes need to come off of you to walk full, fully in the land of the living as opposed to in the graveyards. But that's a process. That's part of the meta narrative that you and I have. So what does that look like in Scripture? Ephesians 2 says, God saved you through faith as an act of kindness. His battle, an act of His kindness. You had nothing to do with it. I love that. It's a paraphrase, but I love it. You had nothing to do with it. You were the object of His love. You didn't have to do something to get Him to love you. He already loved you. You can't get Him to love you anymore. What are you going to do to get Him to love you any more than to go to the cross for you? What would you do? Lord, could you go to the cross twice? <laughs> You're like, what are you going to do to get God to love you more? There's nothing. Here's another one. It goes on. It says, being saved is a gift from God. It's not the result of anything that you've done, so no one can brag about it. Titus says, he saved us, but not because of anything we had done to gain his approval. Hear that? We have his approval, but not because of anything I did. So it's not about you're going to, tell, you're going to somehow create a story. You can't create a story. The story's already in play. You can just be a part of the story or not be a part of the story. And if you really believed it, not only would you walk in rejoicing, you wouldn't be able to wait to share this story with other people. One of the biggest changes that I that had in my life was when I gave my life to Jesus, I discovered that I discovered grace. And I discovered that all these things are true, and I, I believed it. And when I did, God gave me that gift. I believed the story, and the story began to resound inside of my heart and my life. And somewhere along the line, somebody started talking to me about advisors and about advice. And I started living out of advice instead of out of the gospel, the good news. And I got stuck. And one way I know is when people would say, you ought to share Christ with people. I would say in my heart, I'd never say it out loud, nobody did, but I would say in my heart, why would I try to bring somebody into this bondage that I feel? I'm so hurt. I'm trying so hard. I never seem to feel the approval of God because the constant message of the church was grace mixed with law. You, Jesus saved you, yeah, but there's some stuff that you have to do to stay saved. <laughs> really? Because <laughs> that's not at all what the Bible says. When I discovered it, here's what I discovered. The Bible says, here's, here's the gospel. Here's the good news that you get to tell people. God no longer holds their sin against them. 
That is exactly opposite what the church is often saying. They, the church is often saying, if you were to die right now, where would you go? In other words, you are horrible and evil. And there's some truth into the fact that we have all walked away from God. That's true. But we all kind of sort of know that, right? We know we've broken the commandments. We're just desperate. We're trying to find love in all the wrong places. We're making a big, huge mess of it. So we know we're missing the mark. We just don't know what the mark is. We know we're missing it. Sometimes we don't know what it is. But what if somebody just said, hey, listen, all this trying to get to hit the mark, you don't have to do that anymore. It's been done. Now you get to enjoy what comes from someone having hit the mark on your behalf. That's the gospel. So here's the question. Do you tell this story? Part of the reason why we don't is we often don't know the story. We, we try, we, it, we've made it so complicated to share the gospel. They're like, I don't even know how to start. Start with your story. That's part of the big story is your story gets connected. Karen did a phenomenal job last week of sharing her story. This is what I was. This is what happened when I, when I was introduced to the story of Jesus. It changed my story. I found that I could forgive other people. I could come out of my brokenness because Jesus had healed me of my brokenness already in what he did on the cross. And when I began to believe that story, it changed how I related to everybody around me. It changed the fact that I don't need to tell people about their brokenness. Most of them know. I get to tell them, hey, listen, man, wouldn't you like a break? <laughs> you're, you're so desperate. You're so hurting. You're, so, you're just tense all the time. I mean, we see that anxiety. Is, is, it's a plague that we live in right now. And Jesus could come and in one fell swoop raise you from the dead. Maybe there's still some grave clothes on you. That's part of why we're the church. We get to help one another. We get to speak identity and life. We get to remind our, everybody around us, you no, longer are, are, you no longer are dead, so why are you wearing something that's inappropriate for you? Take on the new identity that Jesus has given you. So everywhere the disciples went, they told the story. Jerusalem, the whole city was aroused in an uproar. Why? Because they told the story. And the powerful people didn't want the story to be told because it took away from their story. The road to Gaza, the minister of finance of Ethiopia turns to Jesus. And then he, he, he gets baptized. In Athens, Paul publicly debated the, in the Areopagus, so attuned to their culture that he quoted one of their pagan hosts. Listen, Paul knew the culture. He did not withdraw himself from the culture like he was living in a monastery. He engaged the culture. He was seeking the welfare and the wholeness of the city. He wasn't worried. Listen, this is how you know that Jesus has invaded your life to the degree that you become the one who invades the culture. The culture all of a sudden, like in one place it says, the people who turned the world upside down have come to my city too. What if they said that about you in your workplace? What if nothing they could do? I had a friend, and, and, and uh, he was in the military, and he was a, a, a guard at a nuclear facility. And, and the whole time he was there, he's captive. He can't leave. And all the guys around him, there's hardly anybody there, you know, outside of these guards, and they would all bring out their pornography. This is back when it had to be a book, right? So they had all the pornography, they bring it by, and they would literally, because they knew he was a Christian, they would grab him and hold him and hold his, high, his head and open, hold his eyes open and show them this pornography because, again, if he submitted to that meta-narrative that they were trying to feed him, it made them less accountable for what they knew was wrong. And so he's persecuted. And they did that one time, and I said, what happened, man? His name was Pat. I said, Pat, what happened when they did that? He said, I couldn't, you know, they held my eyes open. He said, and they hold the picture. And he goes, what? and they said, what do you think about that? <laughs> and he said, you know what? He said, Jesus loves her just as much as he loves you. And quietly, they folded up those pornographic magazines and went on their merry way. Because how do you argue with that? You can't, you can't change somebody who's been changed on the inside. You can't do it, Right? So this is the story. You get to tell people the story, some with what you do and how you live, obviously, but often in who you or, or the words that you speak. This is what the Bible says in Genesis. The Lord said to Abram, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. We have forgotten that. He goes on, he says, I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse you, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Why? What did Abraham do that the others didn't? The Bible said that God comes to him and tells him something and that Abraham believed God, right? What did he do? God comes and says, I want to tell you a story, Abraham. And Abraham said, I believe it. And the Bible says literally, it was accounted to him as righteousness. It's the same story that, that Jesus, he's telling the story of Jesus before Jesus had a name. 
before he had a name that he could recognize years, thousand years go by, however long, and Jesus comes on the scene, and now the story has a name. But before then, it was just God said, I'm going to tell you a story. Do you believe me? Abraham said, I do. And then God said, I'm going to bless you because you believe my story. I'm going to pour out my favor and my kindness on you, not because you deserve it, but because you believe my story. And from this, from believing the story, you are going to be a blessing to every single nation around you. Every person who comes around you, you're going to be a blessing to them. If they choose not to believe the story, if they want to fight and persecute you, that's, they're trying to curse you. That curse will come right back on them. You don't even have to worry about it. But if they bless you and they begin to believe your story, the same blessing that is upon you because you believe this story will come on them because they believe this story. I don't know about you. I can't wait to tell the story. Everybody I know, I'm like, I'm trying to find a way. I'm like, how do I, how do I weave the story into the, I'm like, you know, that happened to me. And then somebody prayed for me. And they're like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. And they walk away. I'm like, man. <laughs> it's like if you just listen more to the story, right? If we could just tell the story. It's never about telling people they're broken. It's about telling them how God has made them whole. We focus so long on the bad news that we've forgotten that we're not called to tell the bad news. We're taught, called to tell the good news. I'm wrapping this up. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Again, a paraphrase. Whoever is a believer in Christ is a new creation. Why? Because you believe the story. The old way of living has disappeared. A new way of living has come into existence. God has done all this. He has restored our relationship with Him through Christ. Remember, this is... Jesus is the way. This is how, how come you have peace? Because the absence of peace is because you were disconnected from the one who made you. You were living in disharmony to the universe, right? This is the story. It's, it goes on, it says, he has given us this ministry after he restored me and gave me harmony. Now he's given me a ministry, a ministry, a service to mankind to go tell this story to every person I can, I can tell the story to. He says, in other words, God was using Christ to restore his relationship with humanity. He didn't hold people's faults against them. He no longer holds your sin against you. What if you told the person who's driving you crazy and who's angry and who's bitter and they're acting out of all this brokenness and wholeness inside of them, what if you were able to tell them the story? All of that, it has caused your pain and heartache. Jesus paid a price for that. And all of the sin that you've committed because of that, Jesus no longer holds you accountable for it because of what he did, but only if you put your trust. In other words, you have to believe the story, right? He finishes out. Um, we, therefore, we are Christ's representatives, and through us, God is calling you. We beg you on behalf of Christ to become reunited with God. God had Christ, who was sinless, take our sin so that we might receive God's approval through him. That's not a hard story to tell. Stop making it complicated. Well, what if I screw it up? It's already screwed up by not trying. <laughs> People are already broken. People are already fearful. They're hurting. They're in complete disharmony. You think you screwing the story up is going to make it worse? It's not going to make it worse, right? Not telling the story is the only thing that makes it worse because it's the only way they can come back into harmony. And it's on you to do that. It's on us to tell the story. It's why we're still here. Part of believing the story is going public with it. I hear people say this all the time. I want to put this myth to rest. They say, you know what? Um, my faith is a private matter. No, it is not. You know how I know that? Baptism. That's how I know that. Remember when the, the, the Philippian, um, I mean, when Philip goes and he's, he's preaching the Ethiopian finance minister, and he tells him, he's, the Bible says he starts the meta narrative. He goes all the way back because he's reading the Bible. He's reading this prophet, and he doesn't understand. And Philip comes and he goes, hey, I can tell you what this whole story is about. And he does. He tells him the story, and the guy gets it. He gets it, and it because it's culminated in Jesus. And then he says, what's keeping me from getting baptized? Can I just tell you that guy had no idea what church was like? He had no idea what living a Christian life looked like. All he knew was he believed the story. And he said, I want to go public because he knew what baptism was. Imagine, you know, there's a whole, whole uh, group of Ethiopian Christians. It's phenomenal. Go, I mean, if you go study history, it's one of the most phenomenal things. And it came from this guy who went back to his country and told the story of the gospel to, to anybody who would hear. And he set things in, in, in place that changed the nation's history. This came because he said, I'm going to make my faith public. Your faith is public whether you understand it or not. It's why you get baptized. 
And if you don't want your faith to be public, let me just say this. I don't think you understand the faith. I don't think you know the story. Or maybe you know it and you just don't believe it. Because when you believe this story, you can't help but tell people. Here's a quote from George McLeod. He said, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap at a crossroads of politics so cosmopolitan they had to write his title in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Three different languages because it was so cosmopolitan. He goes on, he says, And the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble because that is where he died and that is what he died about. And that is where Christ's people ought to be and that's what church people ought to be about. We have a story that has literally changed our lives. Why are we being quiet? And it's not about right and wrong. If you, if you want to make this about politics, you are going to screw the whole thing up because you're telling the wrong story. So tell the story of Jesus. Christ, I heard somebody say this, Christian is not an adjective. You can't be a Christian Republican or a Christian Democrat. You can just be a Christian. And maybe you disagree with politics, and that's fine. But if you make it about politics, you're never going to get to tell the story of Jesus. So forget all that stuff. Suffer because of it. But tell the story of Jesus and let Jesus sort out their politics. Amen? So let me close with this. Have you just heard the story or are you the story? It's the only question. You will not proclaim this story until you have become this story. I shared this earlier in the message, but I'll bring it out as a close. Psalm 107.2 says this, Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.12, he's talking about the prophets being, there was the revelation of this story. And he says, they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that they've been told by you, those who have preached the gospel to you. He's saying, here's what they looked into. They didn't understand it. They couldn't understand it because it was going to be revealed through Jesus. But finally, it was revealed in Jesus. The gospel was preached to you. And this is what he said. He said, even the angels long to look into these things. So just, just think for a second. What Peter's saying is, the angels, eternal, right? The, the judgment for the angels already occurred. It occurred a long, long time ago before man. We know this because the devil is one of the angels, and he shows up in the first chapter of Genesis. And so it, it was settled. A third of the angels, the Bible said, were cast down. That, that occurred somewhere in, in time past. But ever since then, all the angels that are left, all the ones who said yes to God, who are settled in eternity, for all of eternity, They're angels. They're more powerful than you can imagine. When they would appear to people, the Bible says that people would fall down as if dead and worship them like they were God. They were so powerful. And they would say, don't worship me. I'm just like you. I'm a created being, right? The Bible says from heaven, from the balconies of heaven, these angels look down and they see somebody give their life to Jesus. And they go, I don't understand that. I don't know what it's like. I can't understand having not been redeemed and then be redeemed. I don't know what it feels like to be that kind of captive, to be so broken and so lost and so undone, and my only hope is hell. And I started here on earth because I'm living out of the brokenness, and it's crushing me, and it's crushing my family, and it's crushing my city. And the angels look down on that, and they say, I don't know what that is, but I want to know. I can hear the testimonies and the song of the redeemed resounds throughout the earth and I don't understand it because I've never been redeemed. But you and I, we have been redeemed. We have been purchased with a price we could never pay. And the story needs to be told. And we whine and complain and I know because I do it too and I feel like the Lord's saying it's time for that to stop. Just understand, if you could just focus on the story, if you could focus on the fact that you've been redeemed, the only story you're ever going to tell is the story of the redeemed. 
So I want to challenge you as we close. I want to challenge you. If you don't, if this story doesn't move you like it used to, would you get on your face? Would you suck carpet until you have an encounter with God and you really understand this story again? Because I don't know about you, but somewhere along the the way, I've lost some of that power and I've lost some of that joy and I've lost some of the the excitement of being able to tell the story before this is all wrapped up and it's finished and nobody gets to hear the story ever again. But in the meantime, Jesus said. You must work while it's day. And my friend, it is day right now. The night is coming and nobody's going to work. It's going to be done. When Jesus talked about the harvest, he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Not for a harvest. The harvest is already ready. He said, pray that laborers would be sent into into the harvest. What does that mean? People who will tell the story. People who've had the story become, they have become the story. So it's not hard to tell the story. And maybe you like, oh, I could be a better apologist. I don't care. I'm just being honest with you. I don't care. Stop. Just tell the story the best you can. And the more you tell the story and you more, the more you are the story, the more the grave clothes come off of you, the more you're going to tell the story and the more powerful and the greater impact the story is going to have on the people around you. And one day when you get to heaven, And you look across a sea of people that came into the story because you told your story. It will be worth every single suffering, every single brokenness, every single persecution that anybody ever brought against you. It will be worth it. And you will walk in the kind of joy that we can only imagine and taste of here. So I'm not trying to put a trip on you, a guilt trip. I'm trying to motivate you because I want to be motivated too. We have a story to tell. And when we tell this story, people are going to come to know Christ and their grave clothes are going to fall off of them, and they're going to walk into such joy you and I can't even begin to imagine. Won't you stand with me? If you've never made that, if you've never made Jesus the center of your story, the story's always been and only about you. It's time. It's time you believe the story. I've told it this morning. It's time you believe the story. It's time you say yes. What does that look like? Just Enter into it. Jesus, I believe. I believe what you did on the cross was enough. I believe that it's not my actions. It's not all the things that I can do. It's what you did on my behalf. I believe it, Jesus. And if you can do that, that's all that it takes to come in to know Jesus, to let go of your sin and take hold of his righteousness, to make the great exchange that he's made available because of what he did on the cross. You're the only one can do that. No one can do that for you. You can't do it for your kids. You can't do it for their posterity. You can only do it for you. And if you tell the story with your life and you tell the story with your words, everybody around you gets the story. And if that's you and you've been hearing the story and you know what, it's time that I made Jesus the Lord of my life. Would you just do that? We're going to pray. I'm going to ask everybody to bow their head. If you've never done that and you want to do that this morning, whether you're here in this room or if you're online, just it's a simple prayer. The prayer isn't magic. It's just an acknowledgement that you believe the story. So pray with me if that's you. Jesus, I believe your story. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. Lord, for what I did, I couldn't pay. But Lord, you paid it all so that I could come to know you and that you could make me a part of the story. Lord, and that so I could go on and tell the story and make everybody else around me part of the story. Lord, you said you gave me a ministry of reconciliation, a ministry to tell the story and see people redeemed. So Jesus, I, I give you my life and I say yes to the story and say thank you for the story. In your name I pray. Lord, I just pray for every believer here in this room. We call them believers because they believed your story. Lord, that that fire would rise up and again inside of us and we'd be so excited about the story, Lord, because it's the most incredible story we've ever heard and ever been a part of, and we forget. God, help us not let the distractions of this world take away the joy of our salvation. Lord, take away the joy of knowing and living the story, and Lord, most of all, of telling the story to others. Help us do that better. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This morning, if you need prayer, it's our heart and our passion, our love to pray for you. If that's you, um, just we'll have our ministry team up here. We'd love to pray for you. Otherwise, have a wonderful, wonderful week. We love you guys.